God is faithful to save his people. My name is Mako, and I'm, I'm serving as a, a pastoral assistant here. So before we begin looking at God's Word this morning, I want to ask a, a question, maybe thinking on, on your uh, familiarity with history, with different wars, and the conclusions to different wars, and that is, what makes for a good treaty? When we think of the end of a war, one or the other country initiates a peaceful end of the war, and the countries make a treaty, don't they? But treaties rarely seem to be made on an equal footing. It's often said that the winners are the ones who write history. And when it comes to treaty making, it's even more clear that whichever was the stronger military power at the time is the one writing the treaty. So if you think back on various treaties, there are some that seem, well, relatively reasonable, and there's others that seem quite unreasonable. There may be a, a few treaties in which the winners seemed almost kind to the losers, but those kinds of treaties are, are few and far between. With lopsided treaties, not only is there the loss of something possibly loss of property or loss of certain benefits, but there also is the loss of face. And this can cause bitterness decades and even centuries after. There's a sadistic part of human beings that likes to see other human beings suffer. And many, many atrocities and horrible crimes have been committed in war with one of the goals being the humiliation of the others. In our sermon passage for this morning, the people of Jabesh Gilead in Israel are being besieged. They're ready for a peace treaty. They're ready to submit to the terms of a foreign power. Well, at least they think they are until they hear the terms of the treaty. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You also can see the words printed in your bulletin, and you can follow along there. For those of you who have been uh, just recently begun attending, in June I began preaching through the book of 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 1. And at least when I'm preaching, I'm planning to continue to preach through 1 Samuel until about the end of the year. So two weeks ago, we were in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. In that passage, you may remember how God watches over everything. He guided the events that led to Samuel anointing Saul as the first king of Israel. In God's mercy to his people, God would provide a king to deliver them, even though they asked with wrong motives. God's plan to use his king to rescue an undeserving people continues in our passage for this morning. Before we read the passage, I'd like to give a main idea to take away from the passage. 
This main idea is meant to just simply sum up what this passage is teaching us today. And that main idea is that God is faithful to save his people. God is faithful to save his people. We'll develop this main idea in two points. The first point is that God saves his people. We'll see that in chapter 11. And the second point is that God is faithful to his people. We'll see that in chapter 12. So let's begin with point one. God saves his people. Please look at the passage with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabbath Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, so Nahash the Ammonite had led his forces to besiege Jabesh-Gilead, and the men there are ready to admit defeat. They're ready to become vassals of Nahash and the Ammonites. Making a, a treaty is literally the same meaning as, as cutting a covenant. 
in a covenant or in a treaty, there is in general a greater power and a lesser power, and the lesser power serves in some way the greater power. But Nahash would not content himself with simply receiving taxes on cattle or fruit or wheat from the men of Jabesh. Not even as a condition of the treaty, but even before agreeing to the treaty, Nahash said the terms would be the gouging out of all the right eyes of the men of Jabesh. For one, this would make the men of Jabesh pretty much unfit for war. But even more importantly, Nahash's main purpose is to bring shame on the whole country of Israel. So the elders of Jabesh first asked for permission to ask for help. And it would seem that Nahash is very confident. He just allows them time to ask for help. So the terms of this treaty as a whole are a wake-up call for the men of Jabesh, for the Israelites. So long as the Israelites continued to fear the Lord and serve the Lord, God would continue to deliver his people from their enemies. There would be no need for them to be put into the service of foreign nations. And this wake-up call, if we bring it to today, for Christians today as well, I wonder how quick we are to have an attitude of, of giving up, of just saying, oh, let's make a treaty, whether it's with the world, the flesh, or the devil, rather than seeking help to fight. When it comes to the enemies of our souls today, they probably are not going to tell you the cost of coming into their service. Satan and his demons are, are not going to warn you of the fires of hell when they tempt you to sin. But similarly, our enemies do want to bring a shame on us and perhaps hide the consequences so we would agree to a treaty. So if it feels that Satan or the tug of the world or the tug of your own flesh is getting the upper hand, please do ask for help. We don't want to see brothers and sisters begin to serve idols in different areas of their lives. We also want to remind other brothers and sisters of the consequences of compromise. It may not be a literal gouging out of our eyes, but, but taking the drastic measure of gouging out our eyes in order to fight sin, Jesus said, is worth it compared to the punishment of hell. So that was a little aside. Back to this story. The messengers spread out through Israel to spread the news of Jabesh's plight, and they come to Gibeah, where Saul is. Saul hears the news, and, and when Saul hears the news, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. Aspects of this story bring to mind events in the book of Judges, how the Spirit of God would rush upon Samson, for example. And then the cutting up the yoke of oxen and sending it through all of Israel also has us recall events towards the end of the book of Judges, in which the Levite's concubine was cut up and sent throughout all Israel as a picture of the terrible sin of Gibeah. Speaking of Gibeah, it seems like there's redemption for Gibeah. In 1 Samuel, we're back in Gibeah. And this time, God is bringing deliverance out of Gibeah through his anointed. So Saul's warning message to all of Israel goes out. Verse 7 speaks of the dread of the Lord falling upon the people, and they come out as one man. 
The Israelites fear the Lord and they know they must obey and stand by their fellow Israelites in Jabesh Gilead. Saul leads the men into battle. They come into the enemy camp in the early morning and strike down the Ammonites. Victory is given to Saul, the anointed king. Verse 12 speaks of some of those who opposed Saul before. There are other Israelites who now want to put those people to death. And those are likely the worthless fellows of 1 Samuel 10, 27, who said, how can this man save us? But Saul's response gives credit to where credit is due. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It is the Lord whose spirit rushes upon Saul and empowers him to deliver the men of Jabesh Gilead. And as Saul acknowledges, it is the Lord who has worked salvation. The Lord did use his anointed king. The actions of Saul echo back to the actions of the judges. God raises up leaders to deliver his people. One can almost think of Saul like a, a super judge or a judge version 2.0. The fact that God uses his anointed king to bring about salvation leads to the renewal of the kingdom and to the crowning of Saul as king in, in verse 15. Saul had been publicly chosen as king already, but here Saul is crowned king. This is Saul's coronation ceremony, and all of Israel rejoices. The king that God appointed for the Israelites does what he's supposed to do. He feels a righteous anger against the enemies of Israel. He leads them into battle. By God's power, God delivers through him. I wonder if Saul felt any pressure to prove himself, to prove that he was worthy to be king. But if he did, he doesn't show it here. Here in this story, God empowers Saul to act in a manner worthy of a king to lead God's people into battle. And we know that the victory is God's. As much as we may want to shine the spotlight on Saul, the spotlight really should still be on God. This does not seem to be the same Saul who was hiding among the baggage just a couple chapters before when he was being chosen as king. Instead, Saul was acting as a man who had the Spirit of God rush upon him. As Saul said, it is the Lord who worked salvation in Israel. God can take the man who was hiding among the baggage and, and make even this man a warrior who would lead his people into victory. Saul's naysayers were proven wrong. But not because of how great Saul was, but because God chose to use Saul. Even though the manner in which the Israelites asked for a king was wrong, God still used Saul to save his people from the Ammonites. And even though at first the men of Jabesh-Gilead were willing to make a treaty with the Ammonites, God still chose to deliver them when they asked for help. So consider how merciful God is in rescuing his people from their enemies. And consider how God is so merciful to us as well in rescuing us from sin and death. In response to God's deliverance, Saul's coronation ceremony was a joyful occasion in which peace offerings were sacrificed to the Lord. It was an occasion of rejoicing for Saul 
and for all the Israelites. So this natural response of rejoicing in response to, to how God delivers us applies to us today also. We are to be people who rejoice because God has rescued us from sin and death. We are to be people who rejoice because God has delivered us. The men of Jabesh Gilead were facing the threat of an enemy, the possibility of their right eyes being gouged out because they would not surrender. But God delivers them. God rescues them. And so can you imagine how thankful they would be to God? If your enemies were getting ready to, to pluck your eyes out, but God saved you from that, how thankful would you be? And God has saved us from a worse fate than that. A good place to meditate on what joy looks like in the Christian life is by reading Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. In that letter, Paul continues to tell the Philippians over and over that they must rejoice. It's a command, so it is a duty. But it is much more than a duty. It's also a delight. Our joy flows out of an understanding of our salvation and a knowledge of who God is, who this God is who saves us. So that brings us to our second point. God is faithful. God is faithful. Please look with me at chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. 
and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So in considering God's faithfulness in this point, we'll consider three different ways that God shows his faithfulness in 1 Samuel chapter 12. First, we'll look at God's faithfulness shown through Samuel. God's faithfulness shown through Samuel. This is in verses 1 to 5. God is faithful in giving his people a just judge. Samuel is at the end of his life. He is ending his time as judge of Israel, and the new king of Israel has been crowned. Now Samuel calls Israel to the witness stand. If Samuel has wronged Israel, Israel should speak up. If Samuel has taken bribes, if he has defrauded anyone, Israel should speak up. Israel should speak up in front of the anointed king and in front of God who is watching. But Samuel hasn't. Samuel has lived a life of obedience to God. He has faithfully taken on the role of judge of Israel in a way that honors God. Several weeks ago, we considered God's mercy to Israel in removing ungodly leadership. Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were not leading in a godly way, and so it was God's mercy to his people for them to be removed. Samuel would fill the role of judge and priest and prophet, depending on the occasion, and Samuel would do so faithfully. God's raising up of Samuel to lead is just one example of God's faithfulness to Israel. Samuel is finishing the race well. 
But sadly, as we saw at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel's sons do not walk in his ways. In contrast to Samuel, Samuel's sons are, are taking bribes. They're perverting justice. So if Samuel had any expectation that his sons would serve as godly leaders after him, those expectations are crashed. They're crushed. Samuel would not begin a dynasty of judges. Samuel would serve, and then he would die. His leadership was temporary. He would be a transitional figure between the judges and the kings. Now, there are not many people that you can think of greater than Samuel in the story of the Bible. Maybe Moses. Samuel's reputation was above reproach. He served as prophet, priest, and judge faithfully. But one day, there would come a leader greater than Samuel. Someone who would serve not only as prophet, priest, and judge, but as prophet, priest, and king. And that man's name is Jesus. Whereas Samuel lived a blameless life, Jesus lived a perfect life. Whereas Samuel's life would end, Jesus' reign would last forever. Samuel was the kind of leader that Israel needed at the time to urge them to repent. Jesus is the eternal king who urged Israel then and urges us now to repent. Jesus served as prophet. He was God's word incarnate. He spoke God's words. He served as priest. He ever lives to intercede for us, and he gave up his own life as a sacrifice. And Jesus reigns as king. So if you're today and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, what do you think of Jesus? Who is Jesus? And do you have an answer to that question? And I and the other Christians in this room want to tell you more about who Jesus is. We want to tell you of the God who reigns as king over this universe. We want to tell you that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against God, just as we have. And we want to tell you that through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins. And we want to tell you what it looks like to turn away from your sins. We call this repentance, and to follow Jesus. So please talk to me, talk to the elders, talk to just other believers in this room about what it looks like to follow Jesus. So the second way we see God's faithfulness in this chapter is in how God has shown his faithfulness in the past. How God has shown his faithfulness in the past. In verses 6 to 11, Samuel reminds us of the Lord's faithfulness in appointing Moses and Aaron. Samuel reminds the people of Israel of times when they cried out to God, admitting their sin, and each time God delivered them. God saved them. God rescued them whether through Jeroboam or Barak or Jephthah or, or Samuel himself, God faithfully delivers his people time and time again. 
So this time God is asked to be the witness. God is witness to what he has done and how Israel responds each time. What Samuel describes here is again and again described in the book of Judges. The Israelites sin. God allows Israel's enemies to to rule over them or oppress them. Israel cries out to God for help, and God answers. God appoints someone to deliver them by the power of his spirit. One would think that maybe God would get tired of this, but God continues to rescue Israel again and again. God is patient, and God is faithful to an unfaithful people. So what can we learn from this review of history? We have the privilege of looking back not only to God's salvation through the leaders up to Samuel, but of remembering God's salvation up to Jesus. For us as well, we don't want to, rem- we don't want to forget God's faithfulness. But we must remember God's faithfulness. So have you, how have you seen God's faithfulness displayed through God's word? How have you seen God's faithfulness displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ? How have you seen God's faithfulness displayed, recorded in the history of the church? And how have you seen God's faithfulness displayed in your own life and in the lives of other brothers and sisters here? If we just stopped to think about it, it would take all day and many days to just list all the ways that God has been faithful. And we would just be getting started. And in thinking on God's faithfulness in the past, before we move on to the third way of thinking on God's faithfulness in the future. We need to address the sin that Samuel was addressing at that time. So chapter 11 began with a treaty that was rejected. And the verses here also are like a treaty. They're acting like a a reaffirmation of Israel's treaty with God. God is the king and the Israelites are God's nation. The Israelites are God's vassal state. And so verses 14 and 50 have more than one if-then statement. Because naturally a treaty has stipulations. There are expectations that God has for his people. If the Israelites and their king fear the Lord and serve the Lord, all will be well. If they do not obey the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against Israel and their king. Yes, Israel has a new king. His name is Saul. But this new king is still not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority over his people. And the terms of God's treaty will continue. The terms of God's covenant will continue. And God displays grace and mercy in his covenant. Of course, the sovereign king of the universe should expect obedience from his people. And there are punishments that fit the crimes. So look back again at the passage. Before the Israelites had simply ignored Samuel's warnings against their sin in asking for a king. But this time Samuel tells the Israelites to watch as God displays his power. In verses 17 and 18, Samuel says that he will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain at the beginning of the wheat harvest. And God does in order for the Israelites to see their sin. The wheat harvest was the beginning of the dry season. So it would be 
very strange for there to be a sudden thunderstorm. On top of that, a severe thunderstorm could really damage the harvest. This was their livelihood. This was their food. This supernatural sign did cause the people to fear the Lord and Samuel as it should have when, like even though the Israelites weren't listening when Samuel was warning them before. And this time, in verse 19, it appears that there is repentance. The people ask Samuel to pray for them so that they will not be punished with death for their sins. And from verse 20 until the end of the chapter, we hear Samuel's words to the people, and these words contain profound truths about who God is. And so we consider the third way that we read of God's faithfulness in this section. God will be faithful in the future. God will be faithful in the future. Israel's sin is not meant to, to cause them to wallow in despair. They are to see their sin clearly, and God holds out hope for Israel. God will be faithful to them. Consider again what Samuel says from verses 20 to 21. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Samuel begins by telling Israel to not be afraid. But yes, they must repent. They must turn away from their sins and serve the Lord with their whole heart. They are to remember that following anything or anyone other than God is empty. Those other things cannot deliver. And here in verse 22 is where we have God's promise of future faithfulness. We read, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So here we have a wonderful truth to consider. The bedrock of God's faithfulness to his people is the honor of God's name and the fact that God is pleased. God is happy to have his people for his people. In other words, brothers and sisters of, of WSBC, our reputation as a church matters to God because we're meant to represent God. We are meant to reflect something of who God is. Because we're God's people, he is so intimately uniting himself with us that when we sin, we bring dishonor on God's name. And this setting apart of a people for himself, whether in the Old Testament with Israel or, or the church today, this setting apart of a people for himself is something that God takes joy in. If you spend enough time in close relationship with other Christians, there may be moments when God's joy in us surprises us. There are times when we are so unfaithful, so selfish, so greedy, so proud, so much like the rest of the world, and yet God still takes joy in us, yet God still does not forsake us. God still does not leave us. God will remain faithful to the people he has chosen. And that's something for us to be grateful for. If God's faithfulness to us was dependent on our every moment faithfulness to God, God would have left us long ago. But God remains faithful to us in spite of ourselves. God is so patient with us. And so, brothers and sisters, take comfort in this. Take comfort in the fact that there's hope for those who have sinned as we have. 
God wants his name honored. He wants his name glorified. And he wants us involved in the process. And so he will not leave us. This is not to minimize repentance. There are clear commands here to be obeyed. And we must leave our sin behind. But God not forsaking his people, being tied to the honor of his name, is something more sure and steady than how we are doing in our day-to-day fight against sin. And God's concern for the honor of his name is good reason for us to be concerned for the honor of God's name as well. And so, for example, there may be times when a member of this church is sinning and is not repentant of that sin. And out of compassion for that person, we should warn that person of the danger that he or she is in and speak the truth in love. And care for that person is not the only reason to confront that person if he or she is sinning. Of course, we should care for one another. But we also should care for how the church as a whole reflect God's glory and testifies to God's name. We should be concerned with God's reputation, with God's name being praised among the nations. We should be concerned with the fact that we as a people are united with God. So when think of the non-Christians that you know, when they think of Christianity or when they think of who God is, they so often start with simple observations of the Christians that they know. So let's not set up stumbling blocks for those wanting to know more about God by allowing unrepentant sin to continue in our churches. So this is part of why at WSBC we practice church discipline, not only out of love towards a member who may be trapped in sin, but also for the honor of God's name in the local church. When I first joined a church that took church membership very seriously, there were aspects of that church, such as members voting that I hadn't really thought of or didn't really have much of an opinion on at the time. But what was attractive to me about this church taking membership so seriously uh, and church discipline seriously was that I knew that if I ever needed to be on the receiving end of church discipline, if I ever needed the most severe warning uh, from the church, that the church was willing uh, and was thinking through how to do that with any member who would be caught in sin. And if you're curious thinking any more about that, that's just thinking through uh, part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18. And I'm just thinking on this because it really is possible for any of us to be blinded and self-deceived by our own sins. So committing to a church, when I committed to that particular church at that time, they were confirming as far as they could tell that I was a follower of Jesus. But if I became self-deceived and went my own way, following my own sins and not repenting, that church would not allow me to just make an exit unnoticed into the world. So there would be members that would be willing to confront me on my sin. And if necessary, the whole church would be willing to act. So brothers and sisters, let's take the honor of God's name seriously as we love one another. And there may be some who are new to this church as well who haven't thought much about church membership or church discipline. Uh, Happy to talk with you or please talk with one of our elders. 
Luke or Brian, if you're interested in uh, church membership. So God's concern with his own name as reason for his not forsaking us is reason enough for comfort. But then there's even more comfort for God's people in this passage. And that's coming through Samuel as God's appointed leader. So if you look again at verse 23, it reads, Samuel is speaking and he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I'll instruct you in the good and the right way. We considered earlier in the sermon how Samuel is acting as prophet, priest, and judge. Here as well, he's acting as God's mediator between God and his people. He's giving us a taste of a future greater mediator, Jesus, whoever lives to intercede for his people. Notice as well that Samuel takes it as his responsibility to pray for his people. If he did not pray, it actually would be sin against God. And Samuel will continue to teach the people as well. The people continue to need leaders who will pray for them and who will teach what God has revealed to his people. The emphasis on prayer and teaching by those who lead God's people continues on into the New Testament church. So consider the book of Acts. The reason that the apostles appointed spirit-filled deacons in Acts 6 was so that the apostles could continue to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of God's word, while the deacons could do other good and necessary work. So those two things were at the core of what Samuel was called to do. And they're at the core of what your elders are called to do. We continue to be people who need prayer and people who need to be taught from God's word. That is something that we can be both thankful for and to some extent take part in. Whether or not we're elders, we have the privilege of, of praying for one another. And we may have different opportunities to teach God's word as well. In addition to this, there are so many behind-the-scenes ways that members serve that make it possible for those who preach to preach and for those who are listening to listen. This morning's passage closes with a command and a warning. Verse 24 and 25, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This echoes what Samuel has already said in regards to fear of the Lord and the service of the Lord. And it speaks again of the punishment that may come upon Israel if Israel does not live rightly. So God's command to fear him, to serve him, we can directly apply that to our lives today. We should approach God with awe and with trembling. We should have a, a fear of the Lord. We don't want to approach the Lord casually, even though Jesus calls us friend. And we are to serve the Lord with all our heart. Our heart attitude is one of service. We serve as we remember all the great things that God has done. And so we serve out of thankfulness to God. So brothers and sisters, let's check our own heart attitudes towards God. 
Do we approach God with fear and with trembling? Does that affect how we approach even Sunday morning and our attitude as we worship God? And at the same time, do we overflow with thankfulness for God's kindness towards us? And do we have a desire to serve God with all our hearts rather than serving our own selves? And as we strive to obey these commands, there will be times when it feels hard to obey these commands. Let us remember God's faithfulness. He has been faithful in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. Our service given to God is service done for a good king who saves us from the bonds of our former master of sin and death. And so let's continue to approach God with confident gratitude. God has chosen us to be his people. And what an amazing thing it is that he unites us with him. God's name, God's reputation is at stake in how he treats his people. And God will always prove himself faithful. So let these truths about God spur us on to grow in our fear of the Lord and to faithfully serve him. And let us joyfully remind one another of the fact that God is faithful. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are the faithful God. Lord, we thank you that we can see examples of your faithfulness in the past and in the present and that you will be faithful in the future. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we thank you for your continued faithfulness to us. And Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king who intercedes for us that you continue to abide with us. You are faithful. Lord, would we serve you with our whole hearts? Lord, would you grow us in the fear of you as we consider who you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.